You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, everybody. How are you all? Okay. <laughs> Stunning to see your faces. Um, my name's Michael. My name is Aomi. Um, and tonight we have curated with the lovely assistance of M Pavilion an event called Decolonizing Water. Um, firstly, I'd like to acknowledge country. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples and their rightful lands, skies and waterways. I'd like to extend that acknowledgement to any First Nations peoples present tonight and to my ancestors and the lands in which we come from, Noongar Budja in Western Australia. I'd like for everyone to remain conscious of the country we're walking and learning and living along this evening and always, and for it is those spaces that first knowledges have been birthed from and nurtured within since time immemorial. So something to keep in mind tonight, especially when we're considering decolonizing water. Um, so tonight has been a fantastic collaboration with an artist, Jazz Money, who unfortunately can't make it tonight, and this wonderful person beside me, Anna Lara Haynes, who is a PhD candidate at Monash and with an interest in design, decolonizing waterways and indigeneity in Australia. Um, Jazz is a Wiradjuri poet and visual artist who has created a beautiful lightscape for us tonight in collaboration with Blue Bottle, a lighting company, and has basically used the lighting system and rigged it here to create a beautiful lightscape that throughout the evening, as it gets darker and the sun sets, will be kind of nestled in. And um, I encourage you to stay behind later to enjoy that once our little conversation uh, it concludes. Thank you, Michael. Um, I guess I'll just briefly begin by introducing what we're talking about today and providing some context for you all um, to kind of guide our conversation as the night progresses. So thank you so much for coming out, first of all. Uh, tonight's conversation is really intended to help spark a critical and constructive dialogue around what water is within design practice and all of its inherent intersections. So within our Australian context in particular, water acts as the lifeblood for our landscapes as it is deeply ingrained within political and economic discourses which shape the socio-cultural lenses in which we engage with the spaces of our everyday. Citing the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, continued issues of water scarcity, which has sparked conflicts throughout the Horn of Africa and into the Middle East and Asia, as well as continuing conversations here at home surrounding water management and indigenous connections to water, its, tri its tributaries and basins, it is difficult to deny that the long global histories of colonisation have played a significant part in designing the realities that we face today. On the premise that everything begins with the design, the intent of this evening is to understand what water means within design so we can begin to unpack how we can decolonise water within the procurement and creation of spaces. So on that basis, uh, I guess we'll begin the conversation. I'd like to actually ask Anna, um, I guess to begin with, how do you define what decolonisation of water means within our Australian context, within your, within your own understanding and context? 
Okay, thank you everyone for being here and hopefully it'll be a night to enjoy and hopefully you'll leave with a lot of thoughts and reflections. Um, so decolonizing um, in the Australian context, first of all, we need to acknowledge that the colonialism um, disrupted the land massively in Australia, especially, well, Melbourne is a great example because of what we see today is completely different to the pre-colonial landscape that was here before um, European settlement. So when we think about uh, modern practices of water that have created the landscape that we see today um, and think how we can disrupt that to decolonize it, it means not only there's a lot of trends in design infrastructure and architecture that try to like either restore, preserve, or sort of work with water, but in terms of decolonizing, especially in the work that I've been doing um, through the last four years, um, it's more about changing uh, ontologically our perceptions of what it means to work with water. So for example, uh, thinking of water as a more than human entity that has agency, thinking about um, water as a you know, living being that has its own force, it has its own flow, uh, it can be warm, hot, it could be fast, it could be slow, you know, and, and, and sort of reflecting on what water is for each of us to create a relationship with it. So in terms of decolonizing, I think it's about relationships and it's about nourishing those relationships and, yeah, expanding that into our practices. Um, it's not an easy thing at all. It's really, really hard, especially for practices that have been embedded in institutions and Western practices, especially like... I'm working with architects and it's hard sometimes for architects and engineers to sort of break those boundaries or those sort of set rules of how they have to design things instead of um, maybe asking them, okay, now your client is water <laughs> and think about how would you design this landscape for water, not only for human purpose, um, human-centric ideas and needs and wants. So, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And I think tonight is a wonderful example of that and the ways that representations of water can be decolonized as well. For example, tonight in the lightscape that we'll be able to reveal later as the sun goes down, the first segment, Jazz has used a combination of green and blue to create this swampy color that they described as muddy green. And it was kind of a callback to the lands of which this place was, which used to be wetlands. And so looking back on how design and art and space creation like we have done tonight can create callbacks to water to remind us of the truths of place. And so I think truth-telling is also a really important part of decolonizing water as well. So how do you think we can incorporate truth-telling into the decolonization of water in design? I think that it's, it's, it's sort of, um, how do you say it, like a coin of double faces? I don't know if that's a thing in English, sorry. <laughs> English is not my first language. Um, one thing is truth-telling is it, it's, we have to be careful because I think in the late, it's kind of in vogue to, to try to incorporate indigenous knowledges into everything we do because, you know, it's part of truth-telling and reconciliation. Uh, but it puts a lot of, a lot of, you know, carrying into um, uh, knowledge holders. Um, so I think there's one part is us as, in my case, I'm a migrant, um, as a migrant, or maybe as settlers, or maybe as, I don't know, how you identify yourselves. 
Uh, one thing is to really become relational and aware of privilege, aware of where we are and how we, how we deal with indigenous knowledge. But on the other side is actually listening and learning and sharing, um, being open to learn the ways. No? And, and know that it's not our space to do certain things and know certain things. And I think that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying is there's, it's quite complex. So, a little bit earlier, uh, Anna actually mentioned something about disruption, which I think within the context of this conversation is actually uh, very critical as well to think about when we think about disruption um, of, for example, the Birrarung just nearby and how that over time has changed and expanded and been moved and shifted to kind of suit human contexts and uh, the way we, the way we um, interact with water. Um, I was just wondering across the two of you as well, like, uh, did you have any thoughts on how to disrupt in a way that's respectful? Or how do you kind of create these disruptions that can create change, but it is also harks back to kind of the uh, respectful conversations and uh, methods of design that we're kind of talking about now? Absolutely. Um, fortunately, I'm very privileged to be working hand in hand. Well, my, my whole PhD is in collaboration with Boomburung Elder and with Carolyn Briggs. So I was very in a position of learning from her and sharing also my stories of my own belonging and she even helped me to recognize my own indigeneity as I'm mestiza which means I have indigenous and European bloods but in Mexico it's, I'm Mexican so it's a different context of colonization and it's also important for for me to acknowledge that in the work that I do because I wouldn't it's tricky to claim that in here in Australia even though people would assume that I could because I acknowledge my context of colonization back home it is a bit tricky, but learning with her, um, I've been in the great position of thinking about how to disrupt, for example, by teaching, indigenizing the curriculum. Um, we are doing, now, now we're doing another project part of an ARC grant uh, called Repairing Memory and Place. So it's also looking about different areas in the southeast of Melbourne uh, where waterways have been, yeah, trained, filled, uh, dislocated, uh, and trying to bring back those memories through indigenous ways of, of on-country on learning and on-country, um, yeah, researching, exploring, creating knowledge. So I think in that way, that's a, in my opinion, or in my life, that has been a great way to disrupt with the skills that I have. Uh, I think everybody has their own skills and they can just find a way to sort of disrupt that. I think disruption is a really interesting word because it kind of connotes speed or violence per se. And that makes sense in our current context of like ecological crisis, for example. However, processes such as deep listening tend to be slow, ongoing processes. So how can we combine the political and environmental significance of waterways with also the kind of the slow learning processes of truth telling as well? I think obviously that doesn't, that is a bit difficult for people that want everything so fast, especially working with traditional owners. Um, I've been in, in yarn circles and focus groups and just chats with a council and different people. And they're always asking, but just wanting the answer and just ticking the box. And having this ontologically turn of thinking more holistically and thinking, okay, we need to sit down and just listen and then just process that. Um, some of the work that I did with Aunt Carolyn was about not asking, 
not asking things and just being. Just being, just sitting, just walking, just chatting about everything, but not everything at all. Just allowing knowledge to be created. And obviously that, that conflicts a lot with, with Western um, ways of doing academia, especially, like I said, in, in, in architecture. Um, <laughs> but I guess it's a very important sort of lesson to learn when you're deep listening and you're sitting with knowledge and just allowing your time to reflect and think about things and, and have perspective that I think, unfortunately, in our very fast lives, we sort of forgotten. Um, so it's, I mean, it's not going to be a fast process. And sorry to say that to council members and stuff. Like, you can't really just tick a box and think that you're done. Um, so in terms of waterways, and, and the beautiful thing about multidisciplinarity is that there's other concepts that have been incorporated into water management. And in academia, there's things about, you know, deep time. And I mean, I'm going very somewhere else, but thinking about the time of Earth instead of thinking about time of human beings being in Earth. That allows us to think about these processes way more deeply than just thinking of, you know, colonial settlement. Oh, the swamp is murky. It must be full of diseases. Let's just drain it and, you know, channel the river. <laughs> so those, those really fast approaches to urbanism, like I said, disrupted completely the, the environment. And now people want to turn back and disrupt that to bring back the, the swamps and bring back the river. So it's, it's interesting what's happening, I think, nowadays. But it's not a fast thing. Um, I'd actually love to kind of continue talking about your experiences of disruption and decolonization within practice as well. You mentioned working with council and things like that or the process that that takes and how everything uh, seems to need to happen so quickly. I guess within with your background as well, your um, educational background, how do you see, I guess, the future of practice within the context of de decolonizing design and decolonizing our relationship with water? Of what? Kind of practice. <laughs> uh, architectural, based on your background, architectural practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, it's looking bright. Uh, there's a lot of um, initiatives to decolonize the curriculum throughout the universities, so that's, uh, that's great. I think that's awesome. But I think it's also, I don't know, in my experience, like last year I taught an architectural studio for a master's degree at Monash. Um, and it was amazing to, I, I, I'm a true believer that through play we can sort of learn and interact more with certain concepts uh, and just being on ground because my background is in anthropology so I'm, I love field work and I would tell the students we're going to walk and walk the same river over and over again. And the rivers were on the ground because I was focusing on pipe rivers. So they couldn't even see the river and I was asking them to, to walk, you know, in concrete for kilometers and they couldn't see the river and I was like, okay, now look at how the infrastructure changes in the pavement and see where the registers are or see where the culverts or the swales or what can you, what kind of trees are there, are there birds, what's the smell, is it hot, like all of those sort of little bits and pieces was really interesting to see the students like, but what's the importance of this, like, oh, I've walked it already like two times, like, okay, now walk it when it's raining, now walk it when it's really hot, now walk it when it's really cold, in the morning, in the evening, just to see how everything changes and start to see the links between the environment and the river and the and the, yeah, the infrastructure and then mapping that and you can start to see patterns on, on the built environment and see how actually, yeah, buildings cannot be built 
on top of a river. And until you have an eagle eye of the, um, the buildings, you start to see, yeah, that there is this strange little canal that has nothing on our superficial level. But when you look it up, like down, you can see clearly that in a, in a section, you would see a stormwater pipe that one day was a creek, but they decided to mix it with stormwater uh, runoff which I think for me is a terrible thing to do. <laughs> but that's something that hopefully will change with this project of repairing memory. Um, but the other thing was to ask them about, yeah, water as their client. And that was complicated. <laughs> that was, I could see some, some of the students struggling of, you know, one, one particular side had a lot of flooding and they were, you know, architects, I don't know how many here are architects, but the idea of, of um, mitigating Floods um, in this studio was like we're not going to mitigate floods. Like we, it, floods are going to happen. Let's design for flooding, and it was amazing what they created. But I could see the challenge of so okay, but then I need more land, and then I need you know like all of these issues of well yeah you have to work with the whole environment. So yeah, it was very interesting, and I think people are more open to have that kind of education. Um, I don't know. I hope I inspired some students to do other things and think other ways. Um, but yeah, I think the universities will eventually start to create more of these things. And I can see RMIT does as well a lot of designing studios. Uh, Melbourne Uni as well, I imagine. Um, um, I think it was really interesting what you were talking about using water or seeking water as the client and the whole process of um, working with non-human entities, right? And so how that can inform our understandings of country and of space design and that kind of, it's this threshold that people find really difficult to walk through is removing yourself and trying to see things kind of in equilibrium rather than human superiority, right? So I want to know how can education in art and design help students move their practice to a place where non-human and human entities are kind of in a place of equal rather than kind of being separate bodies? Well, I guess there's a lot of, um, there's starting to be a lot of brand uh, trends, sorry, about, um, you know, there's one movement called more than, like more than human worlds or, um, is the, um, yeah, or rewilding and stuff like that, that is a, a approaches to design on how to interact with the environment. Uh, so there's a lot of movements trying to, to get into that sense of, of seeing more than human entities as a, like in a relationship to us. I think, and this goes back to, to the colonization, um, the colonization is about control, right? So when we start to think about entities, more than human entities, at the same sort of power that we are as human beings, that is, that is decolonizing. Um, so, going back to your question, sorry. <laughs> um, I guess, yeah, through these trends that are starting to become more and more, uh, I don't know, in, in vogue or famous or more widely accepted, um, there is a lot of, uh, yeah, academics and, and, you know, also teaching trying to come up with ideas of how we're going to stop thinking that we can control everything. Mm -hmm. And water is a perfect example of something that you cannot control because, you know, it has so much force and 
yeah, a life of its own. So, yeah, I'm eager to see what happens with education in in this in this sense. But it's also, you know, we have. Uh, it's great that now um, in, we have indigenous architects as well building into the curriculum and teaching ways, and there's more access to that, I think, which is important. In relation to that access, who has access to that knowledge? Because when we talk about Indigenous truth-telling and knowledges, obviously there's peoples that have access to that and then people that shouldn't have access to that, right? In terms of stories and cultural practice. So when we recognise as a decolonizing process in Australia that Indigenous knowledges are an important aspect moving forward in that space, who has access to that and who can practise that? Well, we, yeah. The, the thing as well is we have, we have to recognise that the effects of colonisation create a lot of trauma. And I think not, we're not entitled to much of the knowledge. We're only entitled to the knowledge that is shared with us, that is built through a true, genuine relationship with either uh, in indigenous people, uh, knowledge holders, country. Uh, but that, that's a relationship that is built on trust, on accountability, on re reciprocity, on responsibility, on care. Um, and it, that's not an easy process or, or a fast one, talking again about the fast processes. So if the question is who has access or who should have access, I mean, I guess somebody that will take the time and, and yeah, and has the energy and motivation, but not only that, but it's also respectful of, of that. And it's also, I mean, in my experience, like I said, working with, with Auntie Carolyn, like she shares knowledge with me, but I share knowledge back. And that is, it's, we build a relationship. So it's, it's not about what she thinks about waterways, it's about how, especially in my research, how I feel about being in her land um, as a migrant with my own relationships to water from back home and how I nourish those relationships here in her country. So I think it's important to know to what extent we're allowed um, and how these things are framed um, and be as respectful as we can. Um, a little bit earlier, actually, you mentioned uh, that or kind of brought up this idea that decolonization and I think it's very true as well that in some ways the, the term decolonization has become a little bit trendy or something a bit of a buzzword in, in many instances as well and I think when I think of that I immediately think of um, tokenization and tokenizing elements of that as well and um, I guess my thoughts or I guess my I, what I wanted to ask both of you really is how do we begin to make sure or kind of entertain this idea that or, or create a context where people inherently or you can't make people care about things but then how do we create a kind of a culture where people feel or care for our country in the way that um, respect is respectful of indigenous um, uh, uh, histories as well I think that comes from a place of I think the practices and the understandings that underpin a lot of knowledges and histories are something that can be translated into our pre-existing relationships like what you were talking about before, respect, reciprocity, um, mutual understanding. Those, I think, are the pillars of what relationships should be built on 
And so if those are, are the foundations of our relationships, especially in the arts industry and in space creation and whatnot, I think that facilitates a process where you can see more than human or non-human entities as being equal to you. Because if you are building human relationships off of the basis of superiority and inferiority, then you're already kind of across the board going to not be able to access the non-human or more than human realms because you see them as inferior. So if we start developing relationships built on those principles, I think accessing the non-human or more than human and working with that becomes easier for the human and for your practice as well. I think also, and maybe this is an open question for everyone, but I think with COVID, I think we had a lot of chance to observe outside the house because it was the only thing that we could do. So I think those that, that part of breaking those boundaries, it's also, and I put this example as, um, it's about the ordinary things that we, like taking the space and time to actually see and observe and feel and reflect um, in everyday, you know, passings, going to work, going to uni, going to wherever, and then just really sort of reflect on that and observe. Um, sometimes we don't take a time to just watch the leaves and see how different they are and watching the river and see what kind of things we can see inside a river. Maybe there's a bicycle, maybe there's an eel, maybe there's, you know, the guys with the, you know, the rowing and, and just taking maybe time to reflect on that. I think that's I would say that's the most accessible way to recognize that everything's alive and everything's part of this ecosystem. Yeah, I think another concept which a lot of people will be familiar with is reflexive thinking as well and how obviously observation and reflection are really important, but then taking your own biases and your cultural understandings and then applying that to how you observe and how you relate to something, because obviously we all have varied contexts in every category of our lives. So how do those understandings and those biases allow us to engage with different entities? So, hello. <clears throat> um, for example, I come from an agricultural background where Water is scarce, but it's also used as a resource and it's transactional. It waters something or an animal drinks from it, right? So that's not necessarily um, a strong spiritual or cultural association with that. So in what ways now do I move through the world and when I'm using or talking about ecological discourse, in what ways do those biases underpin how I engage with it? Just for example, so how does everyone in this space engage with their environments and country from previous cultural associations. And that's something that also talking about tokenism, I think that is very important because positionality, is, it's, it's going to guide our practices, who we are and what, how, what we learn in our life. It's going to guide who we are as, as practitioners and people nowadays. So, yeah, I think looking back at how you learn to either, you know, value water maybe you were in the millennial drought and then you know you had five minute showers with a clock or you were you're i don't know uh, you dehydrate a lot so you value the access of having a glass of water any moment that you can um, that is very different to people who has who have no water security and who has who have no access or even rights to to drinkable water 
So I think definitely our positions, and that's what I was saying at the beginning, recognizing our own privileges is very important. Um, and where we come from is very important, the same way that I, me as a Mexican, I recognize that the way that I view water is very different to the way uh, Auntie Carolyn looks at water. But through the learning experiences, we, we meet halfway because it's very similar at the end. So, yeah. Even coming back to that idea of tokenism as well, I kind of immediately thought about uh, the idea that, or how, I guess, within the way we are kind of looking at water now, we've given a, we're giving voices to uh, the non-human as well and looking at that, I, I kind of begin to think about the application of, I guess, an inherently colonial idea of, you know, Western politics and things like that and governments and um, applying that to something that uh, doesn't necessarily belong in that context. So, for example, although it's obviously fantastic to give a voice to the Birarung and kind of things like that, how that maybe affects the way that that relationship we have with with entities such as that and how that actually becomes comes into fruition, does it kind of create barriers to the way that that uh, that the voice that that voice might be uh, applied within a kind of our context and things like that? So I guess I was just wondering if you guys both had thoughts on that as well, um, just applying uh, colonial ideas, I guess, to uh, non-colonial uh, kind of yeah. I guess I mean the the Birung has the act of 2017, all that recognizes the Yara or the Birirang as a river with legal personhood. But that <laughs> that's also putting it into colonial context of law. <laughs> so it's kind of trying to work with, you know, the structures to make something possible even though still working within colonial structures. So it's kind of tricky. Um, yeah, I think unfortunately we still have to sort of look through the gaps and try to do that. Um, recognizing the Birarung as a person. So in legal terms, it's very difficult, it's very complex to understand what kind of rights the river has because different rivers around, around the world have different rights when they have um, legal personhood. I don't know if we have lawyers here that can maybe explain that a bit better. Um, but some have, for example, in Bolivia, I think uh, Mother Nature is recognized as uh, like person with people, person's rights. So that means that Mother Nature could eventually sue somebody over the misuse of or exploitation of, of, of Pachamama or Mother Nature, or what, whatever you want to call it. Um, in this case, it's really tricky to understand how these mechanisms translate into practices because there's not a lot of, you know, precedents, first of all. Second, even policies with councils when they talk about even indigenous values of water, they have no idea what that means because it's really hard first to access to the knowledge because nobody's, you know, not everybody's entitled to that knowledge. But then how do you translate that in terms of how the coding system, building codes and um, infrastructure can build around it? It's so tricky. So I guess, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to do in that sense of trying to see how does that will translate and there's interesting projects going around trying to, to figure out how would that look like. I think even potentially the idea that a river can have the rights of a human is almost ironic in a way because we're applying a human model onto something that is non-human. So we're not, we're just 
in a way, elevating the water to the status of a human without recognising the nuances that make water water, because much like the person sitting next to me, we have completely different context as water does, right? And so you can't put a blanket on something. So I think recognising the water as a human has um, difficulties because it has needs and that surpass the needs of a human per se. So I think that is really tricky. Well, <clears throat> we just had a conversation, which was gorgeous. Um, I'm not sure what the time is. Pending. Beautiful. Um, well, we have a little bit of time allocated towards asking some questions from the floor. If someone would like to raise their hand and then a microphone can be handed into said hand. Um, regarding any of the things that we just had a gorgeous conversation about, decolonizing water, the more than human, how architecture and design can decolonize water, education in that space, access to knowledge, anything like that. So if you have a question, please, hand would be raised. <clears throat> or maybe even sharing something about water? Um, you said at the beginning about how, like, design is the starting point, but obviously in decolonizing water, you, we're not at the start because we've already messed with the landscape. Um, and then go back to the, like, the part at the end about um, giving water personhood and that not being the right approach because we're almost degrading it down to the size of one person. What would be the recommended approach? How do you think we integrate water or like, better respect water within our current systems, recognize that we're not designing from the beginning. So, okay, there's two things there. Um, I don't know exactly what you meant by design, starting by this, everything starts with design, but some, there's a um, couple of indigenous scholars that I, they, they state that design is also alive and it's also part of country. So everything in country is designed. So I don't know if that was where you were going with. Um, but I guess, yeah, even design, if we, think, if we take away the idea of what designing or Western conceptions is, if we think that design is how the eel that, get, that goes to the coral scene comes all the way back to Melbourne to breed and get, you know, and then comes, goes back, even that design is sort of, um, yeah, a life and part of country. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is, I'm not entirely, I don't know how I feel about the personhood of rivers. I don't think it's a bad idea. I do think maybe maybe it's not the same rights. Um, water has different capacities that humans have, obviously. Um, so maybe, maybe a different conception of how legal status can be given might be something to rethink. That is something that's starting to happen way more and more and more. I think the Murray River is um, getting the status of an ancestral being. Actually, the Birung is also an ancestral being. So there's a recognition of sacredness and importance of how it interacts with indigenous values. Um, and that's why I think the Birung doesn't have very specific um, details of what does that embed, because being an ancestral being, especially in this place, which is uh, the conversion point of different um, 
clans of the Kulin nation. Um, so the values might change. Um, so, sorry, so your question, um, how would that, what would be the, the sort of foreseeable, the best approach to design? Well, maybe continue with the colonization of design, like the, the Western practices of design, not, not design, like I said, per se, maybe the how we design and how we learn to design. The other thing that it's interesting talking about the colonization is uh, indigenizing, which is slightly different, um, similar, but different, um, which is actually incorporating indigenous methodologies and ways of thinking into already structured sort of um, practices. So that might be more enriching because then you're not also canceling another sort of part of, of how design is practiced, but you're, you're actually enriching it with more knowledge. So maybe that's another thing to think about, of indigenizing. Um, I was really interested in the uh, exercise you did with the students, bringing them to see the form of piped rivers. Um, one, of the th one question I have kind of is thinking about like organizing on, on water, issues of water, there's this big split between people who see the river as just a discrete form versus the, the challenge of getting to see the river as a, as a process. You know, like you'd see the floodplain and you'd see ancient channels coming to life with flooding and you can start to get this idea that the river's not a, the river channel at all and it's not necessarily the river in flood form but the whole floodplain, the vegetation on the floodplain. Um, and short of taking somebody to the same place through time, is there anything in architecture, architectural education, where you help to show the form as process, the river space as time? You know, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Well, I, th I, think, I think I do understand what you mean. Um, well, this is where there's, a, there's this notion of river meandering that I love to think about when, you, when you're asking this because obviously, especially when we're thinking about pipe rivers, they're not allowed to meander. Like they're just, the poor guys are just in a tube. Um, and then they get smashed by stormwater, which just pollutes them and then terrible things happen in the bay. Um, but for them going from, first of all, mapping through ethno-historical resources or maps, really old maps, or oral histories, for example, where springs were. And then trying to overlay that with, so mapping is a great way to sort of look at those changes and then see how those rivers could possibly either, you know, you can overlay different data sets with old maps and then see how the infrastructure changed to put those rivers in the tube, in, in the pipes. But not only that, it just walking and, and, and this meandering thing for me and walking is very similar because it allows somebody to just really take in and seeing what, I mean, obviously in the built environment, you don't, you, you have houses, especially in the Southeast, it's purely almost residential. We, I did a, a, a lot of walks in the North as well, which is um, industrial sites as well, and it's fascinating because you see these massive warehouses and then in the middle of, of, of a warehouse you see 
the river and nothing built on top of it, which must be a pain for all those <laughs> factories. But it's, it's like thinking, oh, ha, you're still, you know, you're submitted to, to, the, to the power of this little creek that had to be underneath, that you put it underneath, but you still have above the ground, you still have to, to deal with it. Um, so through walking and seeing these changes and through time, and like I said, if it's raining, the, the one creek that I focus on, one of the projects of my, my thesis, uh, is a creek that gives water to Ripponlee. I don't know if you know, have been to Ripponlee Mansion, uh, but the state, the, the gardens are um, irrigated through water that is captured by really old pipes built in the 1800s um, because of flooding. So the owner of the house was able to see that the area in the north would flood, and he said, easy, I'll just capture the flooding and have um, this beautiful ornamental lake and just have my gardens all year long. I will have them completely green and lush. And they have a fernery that is amazing and everything. Um, so walking that river all the time and seeing it through rain, um, having the, you know, the gumboots. So some streets, for example, you could see, I would talk to the people living in that street and say like, oh, look, it's like a river, you know, when, it, when it's raining. Because obviously all the water, the carrying capacity of the, of the pipes is so small that these creeks are sort of ephemeral. So when it rains, it over, yeah, it's, it over floods the pipes. So actually the street turns into a river. And Elwood, for example, is known for being flooded because it used to be a swamp. So those sort of memories of water, uh, it's, it's, it was interesting for students to notice those, you know, like water remembers, it will always go back to places where it used to flow. And then through walking multiple times, you start to realize, oh, it's back, you know, the same way eels travel into the uh, Royal Botanical Gardens and the same way they find, they find them in Ripley State Lake, which is fascinating. So, yeah, I guess the continuous everyday walks. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks for this um, talk. It's really super interesting. Um, I'm interested in kind of looking at these two ideas together, the idea that everything starts with design and then also this idea that there needs to be a, I think it was, did you say ontological shift or just a, a reframing of how we perceive what water is? Because, I mean, there's a couple of things going on. So in a, in a kind of post-colonial context and, uh, you know, growing up in Melbourne, the framings of water are kind of, well, there's practical. So there's water that comes to your house. That's a resource. Um, it's, and it's abstract. You don't know where it comes from. You just know that it's clean. Maybe it has fluoride in it. And then there's um, water that's dangerous. So, oh, you have to learn to swim, otherwise you'll drown. And there's water that's recreational. You go to a pool. That's a, you know, a space that you swim in. Or the beach where you can't drink that water, but you can, you know, kind of play within it. Um, and then, yeah, there's uh, not so much um, experience of flooding, but yeah, what you're just talking about, you know, suddenly water appearing and it becoming a river for a moment, um, then disappearing. So this kind of keeps these, all these kind of little glimpses of this, you know, large kind of creature almost. Um, but we don't really see it that way. Uh, but then if you go back to kind of pre-colonial um, times and how the this continent was designed before that. It was designed as a, 
a giant estate that was managed. And so um, the waterways were not changed, but they were, they were, uh, you, you know, there were, there was kind of like a, uh, uh, a um, kind of symbiotic, symbiotic relationship between the, between the, the land and the water. And of course, you know, in the colonial context, that land has to be parceled up into, into little boxes um, because that's how the law works around, well, this is your parcel of land and that's your parcel of land. And, um, and, the, and the water moves through all these parcels, um, so it can't be contained in any real kind of way, which is just such a hard idea to get your head around. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, how, yeah, how do you... Uh, I mean, is that really, is that the best way it is just to kind of go back to say, well, actually, just, you know, just over 200 years ago, there was a whole different landscape. Um, uh, and, you know, 200 years into the future is not that far. Um, imagine how it could be 200 years into the future. I'm not sure what this question is, except maybe coming back to it is how do you, connect those two things. Like the idea that, okay, if everything starts with design um, and we need an ontological shift, then um, how do you, what's the relationship between those two things? I guess, I guess one thing is um, this idea of restoring and preserving and bringing back the landscapes. Um, in my experience, uh, I don't think it's very possible <laughs> to bring back a landscape, like a, you know, not touch landscape, bring it back. And then suddenly you have pre-colonial landscapes once again. Uh, but similar, maybe, through conservation and restoration, there's a, a couple of projects going on in the Great Swamp um, where they're trying to think 200 years from now. Um, and what would that landscape look like? And how do we deal with building codes? And how do we deal with residency? I think they want to build a suburb. So that, that's the question. Oh, how can that suburb be built thinking 200 years and trying to restore, preserve, and bring back um, memories of water in that area. So it's challenging. I think the ontological turn in that sense would um, perhaps could enrich the, the, the way practice is done um, by bringing experiences of water into um, everybody, well, the people's way of designing. Um, I have so many thoughts about this. <laughs> so, um, so maybe as an example, um, urban forests have started to become valued because they deal with the you know problem with heat um, build up in urban environment. But water is still seen like what is it doesn't have value in in urban planning. But that's uh, the thing. Yeah, it's it's like water has been. I don't know why we like we haven't thought about the importance of water in everyday. <laughs> like you said, we we depend on what we're our third of our body is water. We depend on water to survive. We cannot. We can live without food for I don't know how many days, maybe seven days or something. But without water, I think it's only two or three. But um, when we think about even wildfires and and all this management of, of burning and and finally they they oh we have to go and ask the you know traditional uh, owners how they did that and they conserve and care for land. But there hasn't been the same thing for water even though we depend so much on it, which is mind-blowing, especially for somebody that has been working with water for years and just thinking about water all the time. It, it, it is a, we need to reconsider those practices. And the other thing is, and this has to do with the, how the, the studio was taught, 
um, and biases and how our own histories of water changes how young architects and designers can incorporate water into their whole practice. Um, it's also understanding what water has different waters, if that makes sense. So salt water is very different to fresh water. Um, and indigenous people had that very clearly. You know, there's, there's a lot of, even in the north, they, they, oh, there's, there's the salt water people and the fresh water people. Here, the, the waterways, carriers, uh, it's, you know, the name of the Yalukit uh, William clan. Um, so there's different distinctions of water that we also seem to forget. So one of the, the, the exercise with students was to map their own relationships with water and what kind of water was that. And then to start to think about, for example, this idea of creeks being named after very dangerous situations, like Dead Man's Creek. Um, I don't know, uh, you can name it. <laughs> uh, yeah, Crazy Horse Creek, <laughs> I don't know. Um, or, or for example, other meanings of words that we say in everyday life, like, oh, ranging water or aggressive water. And there's always these connotations of fear, and I think you mentioned the fear of water as well. Uh, so how come if we depend on this element so much and we're so embedded into this, why don't we rethink our, our positions within a waterscape and how we can actually nourish that to understand where we sit and how we can affect that, disrupt that, if you want to call it disrupt, and nourish it, care for it. So I think that ontolog ontological turn might be a way to do it. For me, I think it's the best way to do it, um, just because that's what my thesis is about. <laughs> um, yeah, that we'll see. So, so just quickly, um, it could be, uh in the same way that urban forests are starting to be recognised in urban planning policy, you know, it could be something like uh, every kind of council area has to have X number of billabongs or something like that, or X number of, like, certain percentage of wetland. Um, you know, if there was a... You know, I'm just thinking really practical terms in terms of policy shift over the next, you know, 100 years or so. They do have their own stormwater management plans, uh, strategies. Uh, they're not very successful in some councils. <laughs> some are fantastic. Like, like I said, I, I worked, I walked in um, Daradin and Banjo. Very different strategic plans. Very different um, issues with flooding. Completely different. But there is, there is a lot of strategies in position uh, in different councils to try to work with water. Um, the problem as well is, um, so the waterscapes not only is. A waterscape is highly embedded with political, economic, social, cultural relationships. But not only that, if we think about physically, for water to be considered in a local council, they have to consider in a catchment. So a, catch, a catchment has, is way bigger than a council area, way bigger. Um, and a catchment is created by another bigger catchment and another bigger catchment and so on. So the main problem that I've been seeing with councils is that they don't talk to each other. So I think more practically would be to come up with a plan and then try to bring it down to different areas, but in a global, well, not global, but in a wider scale. Um, that's, for me, that's one of the issues that I've seen in these strategies and policies. Yeah, so if the Birarung is a person, then it's a plan for that entire person or that being. 
uh, if the birarung is a being, then it's a plan for the whole being rather than that tra- moves across all those different council areas and so forth. Exactly. You will have to take into account, you know, where it starts. Um, and that's the other thing. You have to think about aquifers and you have to think about precipitation because the water is not only a horizontal sort of way. If you're architects, you have to look at it as a section. So whatever happens here will sort of, you know, water cycle. Basic geography will have to come to this cycle. So it's not only about the catchment, but it's also about, yeah, re-nourishing the aquifers, which is a massive problem worldwide. And this is why we've seen sinkholes happening in different areas of the world. And that is really important because when water is a resource that will, it can potentially stop so i mean sorry i didn't want to finish on this but <laughs> no but yeah wonderful well i think that was lots of lovely gorgeous um stories and anecdotes and questions thank you so much anna for coming with us tonight we've really appreciated it um thank you from aomi and myself to m pavilion for providing us with the facilities to curate this beautiful show for you and as you can see now Jazz's stunning lightscape has just come to life as the sun sets there's three rotations um, feel free to have a wonder look at it from all different perspectives they've considered it from underneath on top all the way over there 400 meters out the back so yeah it's a really gorgeous lightscape from Jazz and um, thank you so much for coming tonight thank you You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Podcasts.